Welcome to the Geriatric Journal Club, featuring practical discussions on the front line of post-acute and long-term care issues that you wrestle with every day. Statements made by guests on the podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. So welcome to FMDA First Journal Club of 2023. Um, Today's date, February 8th, 2023. I'm still getting used to saying the 23, so bear with me. Um, Today, you know, today is going to be exciting. We're talking um, through a a legislative debrief around qualified medication aids in Florida nursing homes. And um, I'm Dr. Diane Sanders-Cepeda. I am joined by an all-star cast, um, Toby, Amina, and Debbie. I'm going to give you the opportunity to introduce yourselves um, so that you can make yourselves known to our audience. And we'll start with um, Toby. Well, good afternoon, and and thank you for this opportunity. Really delighted to be here uh, and and talk about uh, the legislation. Are you guys having feedback by chance? Yeah, I I heard feedback, so I just want to make sure I'm clear, but uh, it's better now. Um, Well, good afternoon. Toby Philpott, I I serve as the chief lobbyist for the Florida Healthcare Association. Uh, It's a great privilege to represent uh, over over 85% of Florida's uh, nursing homes and work with Amina and and Debbie uh, on a number of our initiatives, quality initiatives, as well as these legislative initiatives that uh, are are ripe, right? I mean, we, we've got legislative sessions starting March 7th. These are conversations that we're having with legislators on our workforce and really uh, still feeling some of the aftershocks of COVID. But uh, I've been with the Florida Healthcare Association for the last two and a half years. Prior to that, I served at, at the Agency for Healthcare Administration as chief of staff uh, for five years under three secretaries and had the opportunity to interface uh, with Ian Cordes. And he's been just a, a tremendous resource on multiple occasions. So uh, thank you again for this opportunity. Thank you. Amina? Amina, you want to introduce yourself? Thank you, Dr. Um, Sanders. Um, good ev- good afternoon, everybody. My name is Amina Dobius. It's such a pleasure to be um, part of this panel. I am the Dr. Carlos, period. He's been very resistant to getting steps for the. Did we lose Amina or is that on my end? Uh, doctor, I think we lost her. Okay, let's go to Debbie. Hi, thank you, Dr. Yeah. Sanders. Um, I'm Deborah Franklin. After 33 years on the operator side, um, operating an op for-profit company, skilled nursing, independent living, assisted living, memory care. I joined the Florida Healthcare team as the senior director of quality affairs six years ago. If quality had a color, that's what my blood would be. Um, I'm, I'm passionate about doing things to improve quality um, in our senior environment. Um, and uh, that's why I'm so excited about this bill. And I thank you for inviting me to be part of this panel. Thank you. Do we have Amita back? Yes, I So, I mean, I think we're still having some trouble. I'm going to ask if we could have Toby explain the bill. I'm sorry. Oh. Oh, wow. Yeah, we could definitely hear you now. (laughs) Okay. Good afternoon, everybody. It's such a pleasure for me um, to be part of the panel this afternoon. Uh, My name is Amina Dubuson. I am the Vice President of Clinical Services with Ventura. I also serve as the Chair of the um, Senior Clinician Council with Voda Healthcare and also Vice President of Fadona. Thank you. So, Toby, can you explain to us, um, maybe review what this bill is about, the Qualified Medication Aids, um, what it's about and, and how it even came about? Certainly. Thank you. Thank you, doctor. Um, you know, as we as we look at workforce retention and opportunities to provide advancement opportunities for our workforce, one of the conversations we've had with um, our multi-state operators um, are, are positions that we've seen in other states that have been recognized. And in 36 states across the nation, um, these states have um, formally recognized a, a medication aid or medication tech 
um, position. And we continue to experience workforce challenges. We want our nurses, our RNs, to be able to practice at their fullest and and, and highest experience. And, and we want to offer CNAs uh, the opportunity uh, to seek advancement within the profession and empower those CNAs and really retain the workforce that we have. And one of the positions that we've seen nationally uh, that's recognized by CMS through their payroll-based journal, as well as the 36 states uh, that have uh, statutorily recognized the qualified medication position is that CNAs, uh, this is a licensed CNA who's taken additional uh, formal training, uh, formal classroom and clinical training, uh, would have the ability uh, for a nursing home to uh, delegate the responsibility of medication administration to that CNA. Uh, and so if you look at the federal level, um, CMS requires 75 hours of training for CNA. In Florida, we have a baseline of 120 hours. Uh, to become a CNA, uh, and we would add an additional 40 hours uh, on top of that uh, to become a qualified medication uh, aid. Uh, and, you know, as we looked across Florida statutes, there are so many instances where uh, Florida statutes uh, already authorize persons that are not nurses to administer medication. Uh, and in some of those settings, I think some of you may have received kind of our briefing papers, but just to kind of highlight those is that, you know, we have CNAs that are administering medication to, to patients in a county detention facility. Uh, we have patients with brain or spinal cord injuries that are in transitional living facilities in Florida uh, where they are receiving medication by you know, unlicensed direct care staff. Um, we've got pharmacy technicians, uh, you know, and and, and, and interns uh, that are ad administering vaccine injections. And so uh, we saw this as an opportunity to really alleviate some of the pressures on nurses, allow them to practice at their highest profession, doing admissions and the care assessment plans and dealing with the much more medically complex population we have. And, and the medication aids uh, that are CNAs uh, would be able to fulfill that duty that's primarily being done by RNs uh, in Florida. Uh, we've tried to put a number of safeguards in there. You know, one of the requirements is that an individual has to be licensed as a CNA for at least a year uh, before they could opt in to taking this training. Um, you know, another is obviously the 40 hours uh, under the Nurse Practice Act here in Florida. There are some settings where an individual would only have to have six hours. Uh, you know, as we talked to our uh, senior clinicians, we thought that was vastly insufficient. Uh, and so we took the six hours that's already provided in Florida law and bumped it up to 40. And when you consider that Florida already requires 120 hours um, versus the federal minimum of 75 to just become a CNA, uh, we think the appropriate guardrails are in this bill. Uh, and, we, and we believe that um, it certainly will not only uh, empower CNAs, um, you know, many of the CNAs that we've spoken to that are in other states see this as kind of just a badge of honor that they've been able to take this additional uh, course load uh, and been, been granted or delegated this additional responsibility uh, after proving competency and knowledge before a registered nurse. Uh, and let, let me be clear, I mean, these, these medications would be administered under the direct supervision uh, of, of an RN. And when you look across Florida statutes and some of these other settings, they're less custodial. It could be a home health aid in a home uh, where there's not a registered nurse. So um, I, I think we've tried to make sure from a quality standpoint, and Debbie can speak to that because we've had some really robust conversations with our senior clinicians. Everything is vetted through our senior clinicians. And I think we've gotten to a point where the senior clinicians that perhaps work with multi-state operators, uh, you know, in Texas, North Carolina, other states where this is already recognized, uh, felt really comfortable uh, with some of the components that uh, we've put into this bill. Um, but uh, that's kind of the the overview. I'm certain we're happy to take direct questions. Debbie may have some uh, uh, quality perspective and kind of some conversations with our senior clinicians, but that's the nuts and bolts of it. Yeah, I, I wanted Debbie and Amina to weigh in on um, that and, and give us that overview of what what does this mean for the scope of practice in the building? What does it mean for quality and that anticipated outcomes? And I'll start with you, Debbie, if you can definitely weigh in. Yes. Thank you. Well, one thing I want to point out is, um, you know, we all hate to hear the word uh, MedAir. Um, and you know, we do an education course at Florida Healthcare um, to meet the requirements for that uh, medication error. And in that course, it specifically uh, shows that, you know, the research that shows it's it's not human error. That, uh, the human error that's caused is all the interruptions. Well, our nurses are interrupted a lot. 
as they should be. It may be the CNA telling them there's a change of status in their resident. It may be someone that has fallen. It may be a doctor, a physician calling um, back after they've got labs that came in stat that the physician needs to be notified on. There's a lot of interruptions for that nurse, legitimate interruptions, where in this program, that qualified med assistant is focused only on passing those meds and can and doesn't get all of those interruptions. And so what we've heard from um, the multi-providers in other states is they have seen those med errors going down where that um, QMA can concentrate on focusing on that resident and on the meds. And of course, we have those guidelines in of those meds that take a nurse's judgment call, uh, those are not allowed to be given. Um, and so that's why I'm excited about seeing the quality improvement. Um, putting my operations hat on from my years of operation, we lost many good nurses to other healthcare professions because in our profession, they felt like all they could do was be a pill pusher because there were so the, the med pass takes so much time. And so that's going to alleviate that time of the nurse to be able to use those assessments and help um um, identify changes earlier on and, and reduce hospitalizations and um, do other things to improve quality. And so that's my passion uh, with this bill is I can see that happening, that we can recruit and retrain, uh, retain nurses because they want to be able to do those nursing skills that they um, are passionate about um, and also uh, be able to focus, um, have one person focusing on that med pass um, can help in uh, reducing those errors. And, um, and and that's why I love this bill so much. Amina, any thoughts for you? Oh, definitely. Thank you, Dr. Sanders. Well, at first, you know, being a clinician in Florida, so we never, I mean, did that in nursing home. So I was fortunate to talk to some senior clinician that do, you know, have facilities on other states where they currently, you know, have this practice. So they share all the benefit and they, in, in, it's been years though. So they have the data to prove that it works. So um, that was really an educating part, you know, for me. Then looking at it now, getting all this information, then I'm seeing, okay, how that can benefit my facilities. Of course, my nurses spend an average of four to five hours, I would say, per shift passing med. So that will give them a good amount of time that doing their shift, they can do better assessment, cutting some changes earlier, reviewing those labs, making sure the plan of care is actually being implemented. And uh, also, you know, that would be another way helping us with the big issue we have with re-hospitalization. Because we know we send patients out a lot is because by the time we find out, we get busy, the nurse is busy on other stuff, and the doctor say just send the patient out. But they will have more time actually to implement new intervention and monitoring it. So it really will improve the quality of care if we do it right. And just like um, um, Toby said, we already asked and said the six hours was not going to be enough for Florida. So we opted, bump it to 40 hours that we have to make sure we do the training, the competency, whether for PMAD, whether for um, 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 a transdermal patch, whether for ophthalmologic op or optic, whatever that we're going to delegate to them, we're going to teach, we're going to have feedback and then return demonstration that's going to be validated with the competency. And also those competency will need to be repeat every year. So it's going to be on us making sure we know we do not let the CNAs um, do any skills that they're not really comfortable, have the knowledge and the skills. So education, training, return demonstrations are going to be key to, the, to, to successfully implement that. Let me ask, um, you each have mentioned that this isn't new, that other states are doing this. Um, can you give us some clarity on which states are already um, utilizing qualified medication aids? Uh, I'll let Toby answer that one. 
Yeah. So, I mean, if we look at CMS region four, which is the Southeast, um, for those of us on this that are in the Southeast, I think is primarily everybody. Uh, the only two states in the Southeast are those eight states that are uh, Florida and Mississippi are the only two that have not um, formally recognized a medication aid or medication tech position. So, um, but nationwide, there's 36 states that have. Correct. So we have data. We are able to see that um, in those states that there, this is impactful. What does it mean um, as far as it thinking we're going to ask CNAs to get the 40 additional hours? What does that mean as far as pay equity? What is the cost of the facility? I'm just curious, um, you know, as we're thinking about we're going to be coming out from under the PHE, what, what does this mean for our buildings? I would tell you that as we talk to operators that have um, implemented successful programs in other states, um, you know, compensation is commiserate with experience. And as we talk to our operators across the board, that a CNA that would avail themselves to this additional training uh, and these additional responsibilities uh, would receive, um, you know, per hour increases, maybe a dollar, two dollars, up to three dollars more uh, for accepting this position. I, I, I'm inclined to believe, that based on the conversations that I've had, that you know, you know, facilities or nursing centers that really implement this program are are going to be viewed as employers of choice. I think this will distinguish. Uh, certain nursing homes that implement this versus those that choose not to. Uh, I think you'll find that CNAs um, will avail themselves these additional opportunities, not only for the compensation, but I think there's um, very much a job satisfaction uh, component. And I mean, you know, to that point, let me let me read a direct quote from uh, Lori Porter, who's um, you know, the, the association head for the National CNA organization. This is a direct quote from Skilled Nursing News where uh, Lori Porter's quoted as nurses look at pushing the pill card, as they call it, as a punishment. A CNA who becomes a, a medication aide pushes the cart like it's the American flag. And I think time and time again, as we talk with um, operators in other states that have seen this implemented successfully, uh, it is a badge of honor for the CNAs. Uh, we hope that it is a glide path for them to seek additional responsibility, perhaps pursue an LPN uh, or and maybe go on to an RN, um, because I, I think it's not lost on anybody on this call that uh, when you look at the workforce numbers and long term care, I think it's over 400,000 long term care workers we lost nationally. I think in Florida, it's easily over 10,000. And so we're doing everything we can to look within. How do we build pipelines of advancement? within our facilities? How do we continue to nurture and train and educate our staff um, for not only optimal patient outcomes, but for a workforce retention component? Because if you look externally beyond the walls of the nursing homes, there is so much competition across the healthcare continuum uh, for nurses, LPNs, and CNAs that we're doing. We're fighting for our employees every day. And I really think this will be an option where most operators would say, this is going to this is going to separate us. We're going to be a, an employer of choice. We're going to offer this advancement opportunity. It will uh, be coupled with certainly, um, you know, a financial incentive. Uh, and I think it'll be really well received. Thank you for that. And we love Lori. She's amazing. Um, I want to get a little technical. And I'm, as I'm thinking uh, through the day-to-day and those med, med passes, what are there limitations to which to to types of medications that the qualified medication aid can administer? Are there um, any restrictions or do are they able to do nebulizers? Are they able to give ejections? What would they be able to do and not be able to do? I guess that's my question. Uh, well, they certainly would not be able to administer schedule two through four drugs. So we're talking about schedule five, which is really the lowest potential for abuse. Um, you know, when you think about a schedule five drug, it's, we're talking about you know, cough syrup or robitussin. We're talking about nerve pain drugs such as Lyrica. Um, so I think there's some pretty significant guardrails there that are already in the Nurse Practice Act here in Florida uh, that, 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 you know, foreclose administering drugs on Schedule 2 through 4. So we're talking about Schedule 5 drugs. Um, Debbie may be able to give a little more depth to um, some of the administration um, from that. But I, I know that we have removed uh, rectal administration uh, from the bill. That was just something that we didn't see 
you know, was warranted for this, even though it's allowed, I think, under the Nurse Practice Act here in Florida, we removed rectal. Um, and I'm I'm trying to think of any additional. Yeah. The question that came through our chat is what about ejections? Uh, pre-filled syringes, I believe, for insulin. Uh, and that's Yes. And, yes. And, it, and then uh, facilities can have, you know, separate guardrails, just like we have sometimes administer insulin, you'll need to have two people verify. So you can always have that DNA in the RN to verify it. So that's the only injection. So they won't be doing no other injection. So no other sub Q or IV. Okay. Um, Rick Foley is on. And if you haven't met Rick, I don't, you're missing out, but um, he is one of our uh, consultant pharmacists um, through Omnicare. Um, Rick, I know you had a question. Yeah, so just sticking on the, the insulin, uh, what about sliding scale? How about, is that, a, is that a time where you would yield to the nurse or would that be a, something that would have to be verified by another aide or how would that work? Um, I'm looking here in the regulation, I mean, in the, the bill of what is allowed. I believe sliding scale is not going to be allowed because that's a judgment call, Rick. Um, uh, so, you know, that's why the insulin pen, that's a set amount, how many units um, is, it can be used. But the sliding scale is a judgment call. Okay. And so that would that also, it being a judgment call, all PRN medications where there would have to be at least a limited assessment or a report by the patient of a particular symptom? Um, probably not, but a lot of the uh, questions like you're asking now is going to be done in rule writing, um, you know, just the same as the home health um, rule when, you know, this opened up for the home health aid to be able to, to give um, meds in the home. You know, you had the basic legislation, is, which is what we um, have tacked onto with this bill, and then the rule writing gets into that fine-tuning of those per incidence things. Thank you. So we are getting some, um, a lot of questions hitting the chat. I think um, one was about the narcotics and I believe Toby, you said no to schedule two through four um, drugs. What about if a medication needs to be given through a PEG tube? Will qualified medication aides be able to administer those meds? Uh, I don't know that that's specifically outlined in this bill, but I can look into it. Unless one of our, uh, unless Amina or Debbie have a better answer. Well, looking at the bill, it's oral transdermal ophthalmic otic rectal inhaled enteral or topical prescription medications to a patient. So that's the okay. current. Um, so I think that would rule that out. And we we've already said that rectal is, was um, taken out. So yes. enteral would mean peg tubes, and then any guardrails to prevent abuse. An example is how will this impact um, PPD staffing? Will multi-facility companies use this to further erode staffing levels? Uh, I, I can say no emphatically. Uh, this does nothing to touch uh, Florida staffing minimums. Uh, you're still going to have the pure 2.0 uh, minimum. Uh, of CNA time uh, per day. You'll still have the pure 1.0 of licensed nursing uh, per day. Um, so uh, we, we don't, this is uh, a CNA that's, you know, acting as a medication aid will not count towards that uh, 2.0 minimum that's required by Florida law. And as a clinician, that was one of the things, you know, at first I know my DON would probably worry about. So once we did discuss that, so I know that given the peace of mind, they will keep their staffing. And yet, you know, the nurses will be able to use their medication aid to help passing those meds that they allowed to, that they train and have the skill for them to do so. That's helpful. I think um, someone else was trying to understand, you know, so it doesn't go, it doesn't impact. Um, PPD staffing. It doesn't impact that. So it's it's all separate. So that that's helpful. Um, I guess if we're as we're thinking, you know, the logistics, if a facility, if once this passes, let's say if Florida, if a facility doesn't have a qualified medication aid, is that that's gonna be a problem? If um, you know, what what are the challenges that this may present in thinking about 
um, what our facilities should be doing, like the gold standard for facilities. Is it a is are we automatically going to get a a um, a tag for not having this person in place? I'm just curious and just asking. No, I, you know what I love about this profession is we've moved into person-centered care. Um, we were restricted a, a lot of the regulatory environment and um, uh, with the the um, ROP and the changes, it really focused on that person-centered care allowing us to do it. The staffing bill changed. It gave us that 0.6 flexibility. So if we have a mental health, uh, a facility that has a lot of mental health residents, we may want to add the medication tech. You can do our, our Medicaid, um, I'm sorry, uh, um, certified psych tech. And, and that's new to our area. It's used more in the um, DD homes, um, a behavior tech. So we have that flexibility now. So this would add another flexibility to allow our facilities because every single facility is unique and different. And so they can look at their facility, even in, inside their facility as to, you know, you may have a skilled unit with all those new admissions that have a lot going on or a long-term care unit that is pretty standard um, of their med, that they may select where they think they could use uh, a medita- uh, qualified um, med aid successfully. They may have the environment that they need to use uh, a different uh, behavior tech more than the QMA. So it just allows them to be able to give that person-centered care for their population better. It just opens it up um, for more opportunity. So we have a question around the emergency medication box. And Ian, I might ask you to take yourself off a mute so that you could ask that question. How would you like me to word it? So, I mean, the question is, will they have access to that and the contents? Well, and I'm I'm curious, do you mean as far as like with hospice or with other? No, on, you know, on the floor. On the floor. OK, at, gotcha. At the nurse's station. Debbie and Amina. Um, I, we'll have to check on that. I don't off the top of my head looking at this bill. I do not believe so, because the, the delegation is from the nurse. I believe that would have to go to the nurse to get in the EDK because there's scheduled medications in there that the QMA would not have access to. Um, but here again, I believe that would be something in the rule writing, um, but off the top. And then also um, just uh, in conversation and our work group and stuff, we have, I believe, enteral has been removed so that it specifically removes the peg tubes. Um, okay. you know, we've really worked hard on putting these guardrails in. Uh, we like to be the leading the way in Florida. And we've looked at the other states. We've ruled out things that they've allowed that we don't think will work here. Um, because we we want to continue advancing quality. Okay, so it, and when I was reading through the bill, I I would think that that emergency kit that's um at the the desk would not be included. But uh, if you could bring that back to us, that would be really interesting because I do think that's something um, to note. So and just to clarify, so no rectals, no entrals, so no peg tubes. Okay, mm-hmm. understood. So it thinking and about. Can- can I add, you know, the EDK usually is done in a, a med room and those key is the nurse only that can have it. The CNA should not. And uh, if we have right. to put language, we'll talk within the team, but it's supposed to be the nurse having that key. So the answer to that, no, they will not have access. Yeah, I, if um, I think our ADOID or manager of duty, whatever we were, we they would have access to that. So I, I do think that it, that would fall out of that that um, scope of practice. So that makes right. sense to me. Um, and thinking about the 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 other potential outcomes, you had mentioned that we saw less medication errors. Do we see increased satisfaction? Do we see um, um, other quality measures uh, when we have this relationship, this um, this role being filled in facilities? Just from looking at from state to state, um, what else, what are other quality measures have we seen? I have to get back with you just the verbally where we've talked to the um, states that have had it has been overwhelmingly. Um, positive satisfaction and the, the focus was of that one person being able to focus on that med pass while the nurse was able to do more nursing skills so that resident received more nursing attention um, 
than the amount of time, four to six hours of, of passing meds. Yeah, and I, and I recall like having those long waits while you're waiting for the nurse who called you about a lab, but they're they're yeah. passing meds and and you're you know I would just wait and wait <laughs> because well, wait hey we have we yeah. haven't even put that on the list the physician satisfaction <laughs> will go up. <laughs> We have a question about um, oral medications such as Coumadin and Digoxin. Um, sometimes those medications may have a potential judgment um, attached to that their administration. Uh, should they be excluded from that scope of practice for QMAs? Yes, um, we did have a discussion about that. Those med that need levels. Thanks to a lab that need to be monitored, just like ditch comedy in, um, the CNA should not be administered because the nurse, I have to make sure the lab was done. You have the result and then it can be administered. And then just keep in mind what Amina said and, you know, the person center care and with our wonderful EMRs, you can set them up how you want to set them up as to what med that, that the QMA is allowed to give. And then, no, we want the nurse to give these. Um, and so even if um, you know, it was allowed, a facility can say, mm, I'm not comfortable with that. These are our guidelines. Um, and so, uh, but in this case, that, you know, answer is that's not in the scope. But even if someone wants to allow the QMA, but I don't want them to do this, they can personalize it for their facility. Yeah. Now, thinking about the whole continuum of post-acute long-term care, um, Toby, you mentioned how CNAs and other um, settings are giving medication. Will those CNAs now be able to get this additional 40 hours of training if that care setting so chose to to, to give them this level of education? So I, this is a um, doctor, this is a, a nursing home specific bill. Um, obviously, you know, the agency I think was in, is maybe Debbie perhaps indicated earlier is in the process of um, rule writing as it relates to home health. Uh, and so the scope of this bill and this legislation is narrowly tailored to, you know, CNAs uh, that are currently practicing in a nursing home who wish to be a medication aid within a nursing home. Um, it, certainly there's different rules that apply for these other settings, whether it's a county detention facility, home health, um, the, some of these transitional living facilities. But um, this 40 hours is specific for um a, nurse, a CNA that's in a nursing home. Thank you. Um, we do have another question from Wendy. Will there be directed training or if a multi-organization has a current program, will that program be able to be submitted for approval for that training? I, I would anticipate that some of that might be left up to the board of nursing as we work with them on the, on the training approval process and who's the approved trainer by the board of nursing. Uh, but it's something point well taken, and I'm, I'm I'm taking notes here. So that's something that I'd like to revisit with our team. And then we had a question about why do we need this new position? Is it possible to add language that would allow us to hire med techs similar to um, Alabama? Maybe if someone could speak on that. Well, I think I think that means assisted living. Oh, sorry, assisted living. Sorry. Well, there's a Look difference yeah. um, in the AL is you are assisting, um, you are not administering. And that's the big difference in assisted living, they're med techs, but it's because they, uh, they're they not administering. So they can um, you know, open a difficult pill container for the resident. Um, and so that's totally different than what we're doing here that they'll actually be passing the meds. And that's why it adds, it, it, you, it's got to have the legislation to have the proper guide rails that it uh, is done safely. Yes. And thank you. Thank you, Scott. Sorry, I confused AL for Alabama because I have some challenges with facilities in Alabama right now. Yeah. Well, so, we're, we're healthcare. We love those acronyms. Yeah. <laughs> I have a question for, um, it is maybe for Debbie um, and Amina. How are we going to measure um, um, those metrics. I know we, we, you know, FHCA does a great job of quality, um, your quality cabinet, though, looking at how the, the state ranks and, and what we're doing. What are the, the metrics that we will be measuring? Um, I'm assuming, like you said, quality, um, med errors, residence rights. 
how are we going to be looking at this? And is there any guidance or from other states? I don't know what they're doing in regards to how they are looking at the metrics to see how how this how this is really adding quality to the building. Like, you know, what are we what are we planning in Florida? Since Florida, we're going to be doing it differently. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, we raise the bar for others to follow, right? Um, well, you know, that's why on the cabinet we have uh, wonderful medical directors. We also have our institutional pharmacists. And so um, we'll use that that brainstorming to see if we can capture what's done at the facility level. But most definitely we'll be capturing and tracking and trending the survey data on um, the MedPass citations um, that goes, you know, that happens and whether it's a QMA or nursing, um, because that's a big difference. I, you know, if our um, even if our med uh, errors stay the same, um, but or they go down or get worse, and we'll we'll track down as to whether that's a nurse or whether that's a QMA, um, because we want to be able to see if our med med pass uh, survey citations are going down. Um, is it because we're still using nurses and the QMA didn't make a difference, or is it goes down because we've added QMAs, we still want to track down those MedPass error citations. Uh, was it a nurse or a QMA to be able to accurately track that data? Good. And I ask everyone, keep bringing in those questions. I'm wondering if you, and maybe this was a question for Toby, can you review where we're at in um, the process of having this become law? And then um, any insights on what happens between it becoming law and it being implemented? Uh, certainly. Uh, we are currently, I think, in the fourth committee week uh, of the six committee weeks that precede the legislative session. And I say that um, the Senate bill was filed yesterday. Uh, the, the Senate qualified medication aid bill has um, been filed by um, Chair Burton, Colleen Burton, who's chair of the Senate Health Policy Committee. Uh, the House bill was filed several weeks ago. It's been carried by Will Robinson and the House. Um, the House bill has been referenced to three committees. Uh, it will um, be introduced at the Health Care Regulation Subcommittee. Uh, then it will proceed to the Healthcare Appropriations Committee. Uh, then it will uh, proceed to the House HHS. So there'll be three committees that will offer ample opportunity for public testimony of those in favor of this. Um, others that may have a legitimate difference of opinion, obviously, will have that opportunity. Uh, but I, I can tell you this has been really well received uh, by the legislative members that we've spoken to, as well as other organizations. So uh, we hope to get this bill moving uh, by the third week of February. So not next week, but we'd like to see it uh, agended for that third week of February or uh at the latest, the first week of session, which is the week of March 7th. Uh, we're awaiting, I believe, the references on the on the Senate side, but um, it, it'll be three committees in each. Um, the bill pass if we're so fortunate. Uh, obviously, we'll we'll await the governor's signature. Uh, it will require the governor's signature, uh, and then we'll begin the process of working with um, after the governor's signature, which would, you know, I venture, I'm guessing here, would you know, sessions can include conclude the first week of May. So you're probably looking at late May, early June with just the number of bills they may pass this session. The governor approves it. And then we begin to work with the uh, Florida Board of Nursing on anything that requires um, rulemaking or additional uh, context outside of the so, I mean, we, I would, I, I would, um, you know, I'd be delighted if there are those on this call that uh, would love to speak in favor of this after we have this or the organization ultimately gets to a position of, of supporting it. We, we would be delighted to have letters of support, public testimony, but uh, anybody to give voice to this um, if uh, we're uh, so fortunate to earn the endorsement of this organization. Yeah. Do we have any insight as to once this becomes state law? Um, how will compliance be monitored by ACA? Do we have any insight that we could gain from other states or? You know, uh, open question. Uh, yeah, I hate to say open. I mean, I think we've got a forthcoming conversation. I mean, there was a the, the agency's aware of this legislation. Um, obviously, they probably have now obviously seen the both bills that have been filed and 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 there's a continuing dialogue we'll have a forthcoming conversation with um the agency before it's filed so we, we certainly are always mindful 
uh, and, and want to consider uh, the agency's input. Obviously, I served there for five years, so I understand very clearly uh, their role uh, and, and the, the protecting the safety and welfare of all Florida residents, but particularly uh, our vulnerable nursing home residents. So uh, we'll continue to work with uh, Deputy Secretary Kim Smoke, who just does a tremendous job out there at the agency and, and have conversations. So we can happy to revisit on that um, and, and any input they may have. Hey, uh, Toby, if I could just jump in for a second. Since Kim is on the call, would she be able to comment? Hey, hey, everybody, thank you. Thanks for including me on this. I really appreciate um, the opportunity to, to be here and listen to everybody's concerns. Um, actually, because a bill has been filed, um, you know, both as Toby mentioned, the House and Senate, um, I really can't go into a lot of details, but if this does become law and there is rulemaking, um, then the agency would roll this right into our normal survey activity, as we always would. Um, and I know that there was a question, there was an issue, there was a question or a comment earlier about medication observation and error rates and citations. Just to let you know, in calendar year 2022, we cited um, medication error rate 86%, 80, 86 times on surveys. So we had 86 occasions in which we cited medication errors. So and as you know, in the nursing home, excuse me, on the nursing home side, the medication error rate, um, if you get an error rate of zero or 1% to 5%, you're okay. That's not the viewer in substantial compliance. If you go over 5%, then that is a deficiency. Um, to let you know, in our ICF IDs, and I think Toby mentioned, uh, reference one of these provider types, there's a 0% error rate. So just food, food for thought with that. But, but you know, as, as Toby mentioned, and thank you for the kind words, Toby. He's looking for AUKUS support, as you know. No. Anyway, <laughs> Toby, not, Toby and I go way back. Um, but um, really, really enjoy, you know, working with Toby when he was here and even now in, in his other role, though. Um, but and also with Debbie and other um, uh, association members, just like working, we love working with you guys at um, Florida Medical Directors. Um, we would be, you know, any, any issues, obviously, we would raise those regulatory wise. Um, and as Toby mentioned, there are um, some conversations. We have ways in which through our legislative affairs section here at the agency that we would be um, sharing any any of those um, concerns. So they are, you know, and, and I know Debbie is all about quality and, and her and I've talked about that quality piece and how important that is for us at the agency that that's included. And I know Debbie and her team are, are looking at that as well. Thank you, Kim. Sure. You snuck on. I didn't see you. Thank you. <laughs> I was running in from another meeting and snuck on right quick. So thank you. <laughs> so that's, that's wonderful. Um, I'm wondering how we support FHCA in moving forward. Um, Debbie, what what do you need from FMDA uh, to to keep the energy up? What are we going to need around educating the facilities and the clinicians? Um, what do you need? Um, well, exactly what you just said, um, Dr. Sanders Cepeda, is the education. Um, you know, a lot of times people make assumptions and don't have the education. Uh, I don't want anyone to to um, confuse the assisted living med tech with the QMA. Uh, these are totally two different things. One requires a lot more education competencies. One assists and one can uh, actually, you know, get past the meds. Um, and so we need to make sure that's clear. Um, if anyone has any questions, please reach out to us because if, if they see any uh, place that we're missing a guardrail, uh, we're about uh, improving quality. Um, and so we want to make sure and hear from anyone. So if you hear from uh, any of the medical directors, anyone in the fields, the boots on the ground of an area you want us to focus on and look at um, before we actually uh, did much with this bill. We went, reached out to the senior clinicians. We wanted to hear from them. Uh, we want to hear of anywhere um, that we need to fine tune um, and you know work on this uh, because we want it to improve quality and uh, continue you know getting those nurses um, focusing on those assessments and things that will continue to um, improve quality and you know keep our um, reduce our return to hospitalizations, improve mobility, our quality uh, cabinet goals for this year, reducing psychotropics. Uh, we need those nurses um, and this will help um, be able to do that. Yes, I just want to tell, um, share with everybody before we even have um, what's 
skills um, that um, tech can do. There was a big discussion with the senior clinician, hearing everybody. So everybody get to say, you know, if they have um, any concern on what they think, we we get to um, talk it thoroughly. So within the clinicians, and that's one of the reasons we wanted to make sure we did put enough hours in that bill for us to train the, the, um, the tech. So um, it's something we didn't take lightly because we know we want quality of care. So we wanted to make sure that we ask and bring something that's substantial that can improve the quality of care of our resident and also um, provide, give the nurses some hours to do some other stuff to fulfill um, when we talk about, you know, um, the care that that patient needs versus another patient and also patient-centered care. So that's a good way, you know, it's, it's, we will have an opportunity for or I have an opportunity to make sure all centers. And just so that everyone understands, senior clinicians is that that group that sits within FHCA and they're reviewing everything. Amina has led it. Um, I've had the pleasure of, of listening to all of you guys in different meetings. It's really a dynamic um um I don't know if it's a committee or a work group within it's FHCA. A, it's, it's actually a council underneath the quality cabinet. Yeah, it is really fabulous. So, you know, I've been asking a lot of questions. I've been getting some um, questions that come through the chat and people who are repeating me. But if you have a question that you have not heard asked and you want to ask it, please take yourself off of mute or enter it into the chat. You know, we want to make sure we can get all of the questions asked. I think there was one um, from Scott who had a, um, a request for a FAQ documentation. Do we have anything that can we can share with um, our um, listeners? Not yet. Uh, Toby's been taking notes. We've been taking notes of questions on here. So to develop a FAQ, we obviously need those frequently asked questions. And so uh, doing these groups like this and uh, the senior clinicians and hearing from our members, um, our meetings with legislators will help us develop that FAQ document. Hey, Dr. Sanders, Cepeda, Rick Foley. Um, so it had been mentioned earlier, and I don't think I have it quite clear. So as far as the PBJ reporting goes, there, the medication age would not obviously reduce the nursing requirement. They would not require reduce the CNA requirement. Where would these folks be counted in the payroll-based journaling? Um, and that um, in our staffing, as far as the minimum staffing, uh, that 3.6, you have 1.0 nurses. Um, 2.0 CNAs, and then you have that 0.6 flexibility, which could be a behavior tech, which could be activities if you have memory care, what your population needs. That's where these would count. On the PBJ, um, they, there is actually a qualified med uh, assistant in the PBJ that can be counted. Okay, thank you. Any other questions? No, I mean, I have a question. Um, I mean, for most of you who are in the facilities, boots on the ground. Do any of you have any concerns about anything we haven't talked about? Hey, Ian, this is Scott. Go ahead. Go ahead, hey, Scott. Scott. Hey, good afternoon, everybody. So I really want to thank everybody for joining and appreciate you guys answering my questions. Um, you know, I think right, right now it's so new for everybody. I don't know as if we really have all the necessary information to be able to make those decisions yet. I will say in 29 years of doing this, having an ability to match what the other states are doing is pretty significant. I mean, I hate to see Florida behind anything, so I really don't think we should be behind anything. And I believe if I'm correct, I heard 36 states allow this. Correct. So I know Region 4, I think there's only two of the, of the states that don't allow it within Region 4. Um, so I'm not sure if Kim wants to weigh in as far as Stephanie Davis, what her thoughts are on this, or if she has any thoughts on this. But at the end of the day, honestly, if it can help our nurses stop from, for example, I just, and again, I don't mean to get off the rails here. I ran a report yesterday from my medical director who I'll see today of, of residents with 10 or more medications and my, my eyes about fell out of my head. I've got some residents on 20 and 30 meds. Now, a lot of those are PRNs and things like that. But if you do the math on that for our nurses, trying to do, get through a day, um, especially a day shift where you've got two meals, um, it's a bear and they finish one med pass and they're boom right into another med pass. Never mind the documentation, never mind the assessing, never mind. I mean, they become robotic at this point. 
And so it takes the assessment out of it. And they're just like, okay, Mrs. Thomas gets a blue pill. Mr. Thomas gets a white pill, you know I mean? And they know that stuff. And so I can't say I'm for or against it. All I do know is right now it seems sexy. And I think we should be fully exploring this and really working on this and working collectively as a group to pull it together in a way that makes us successful. Hey, Scott, you're not that old, but uh, regardless. <laughs> so I think what's interesting, you know, I've also had an opportunity and Toby, you were there. We spoke to one of the uh, subcommittee at AMDA, which is our national affiliate. And uh, the physicians on the call did not seem to have a problem with what was being proposed. And uh, most of them did not have any experience in their own particular states. So I, I think it's interesting that that we're not hearing a lot here, but I think to Scott's point, we don't know how this is going to move forward. Um, and I, I always, you know, can get concerned with unintended consequences for things you can't foresee, and, and um, how are the uh, you know the rules going to be written and so on. Uh, but I mean, so far, all the feedback I've heard is mostly positive, as long as the guardrails are in place. Yeah, and I, I think. Um... To that point, Ian, I think we've had a pretty good response among our, our board of directors with FFDA. I am um, very hopeful that this will be passed and um, that you, you, you will be, we will be partnering with you to help create the education because I, I do think um, uh, to Scott's point, I do think that those med passes they're, they're severe at times. And um, I don't know if anyone has ever followed along with their nurse. If you're the medical director at your facility, there, there are lessons that to be learned about how much time it's been giving um, one person yes. all of those meds. And um, I think it's, you know, I, I love the idea and I'm very happy that it doesn't take away from any of those other nursing requirements. I think that is the beauty of what we're trying to do. And I want Florida to always be exceptional. So I am glad that we are leaning in hard to education. As you know, I like education. So all of that makes me happy. It makes me hopeful. So I I, I thank you all for being here. Um, Debbie and Amina, you know, I call you like all the time. Toby, it, it's a pleasure. Kim, Rick, everyone who spoke up, Scott, I, I'm really grateful because I think we need to keep having these discussions as we learn more, as we get to the point where it is hopefully becoming law and rules are being written. We want to be um, side by side to make sure that we understand and we can help educate our providers. Very good. Thank you. So with that, thank you, guys. Thank you. If you are a physician interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, visit paltc.org slash podcast.